for about a month because uh, uh, I'll, I'll be around. It's not that I'm going anywhere. Uh, just that it so happens next Saturday we have our silent Sazenkai. And then the Saturday after that, we won't be sitting the last Saturday in August because uh, the Cleveland Zazen group is going to be doing a retreat that weekend. The weekend after that is Labor Day weekend, and we won't be sitting then. And the week weekend after that is our uh, launching of the next series of Jukai classes where Chris will be giving the talk. So it'll actually be the second, third, the third Saturday in September when I'm next giving a talk. So I get a break, at least on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, the, okay, okay, good, good. So I, I wanted to start this morning. I, no surprise, I found some things I could, I could speak about, but uh, uh, I wanted to begin this morning uh, just by putting it out there. If there are any questions or topics that you'd particularly like, particularly like to have discussed this morning, then uh, we can do that. So. Pause for a moment or two and see if there. And while I, while we're pausing, I'll get the speaker in case we are gonna do that. And let me plug. Yeah, let me plug this in. It's not, I don't, I don't listen to the news or follow the news, and I've even tried out NPR, not on purpose lately. Mm -hmm. but, and uh, so I don't know what's going on with the whole UFO hmm. and uh, declassification of things. But how does how what is has is it that what has been disclosed, and how does that impact Buddhism if there is uh, extraterrestrial life or whatever? Does it at all or is it just yeah. another life form that's part of Buddha nature? That's, yeah. I don't know. It just keeps kind of coming into my thoughts lately. But I don't even know what they disclose or anything like that. I'm not a big UFO buff or yeah. guy. So I just thought, boy, what if they did come out and just gave absolute proof that there were aliens and extraterrestrial life? And how would that impact our beliefs or, yeah. or Buddha or Zen? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> how? Anytime we're looking into the future, even even as Buddhist practitioners, uh, it's like we're kind of going out on a limb to try and figure out how that would impact uh, people that are practicing Buddhists. What would because everybody's personal reaction to that is going to be different. I mean, we could reflect on it and. Uh, and kind of maybe foresee potential reactions. Uh, but what would that entail? Who knows? And it kind of depends upon 
the level of interaction. Obviously, to this point, it hasn't been very much. I mean, that's one of the reasons to be skeptical about it, I guess. If, uh, if beings were that advanced, and if they wanted to communicate, maybe they're following the Star Trek Prime Directive. Maybe that's that's a true <laughs> a truism that they planted. The <laughs> alien beings have Buddha nature, <laughs> right? Of course, that much we know up front. <laughs> There's no mood. That's a given. It's kind of like physicists would say, well, of course the laws of physics apply to them. And uh, yeah, the, the universality of Buddha nature is kind of like the universality of, uh, of gravity. We know that. <laughs> so all aliens are Buddha. That's right. That's right. That much, that's, e that's the easy part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not too concerned because I haven't even looked into what's been declassified or, or I thought there was some sort of news going on. I, I, I do follow the news a great yeah, deal, and I, I have real. no idea. Oh, okay. no, mm -mm. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> My belief is if they're smart enough to get here, they're smart enough not to have anything to do with this. <laughs> and if they wanted to, uh, they, they would be communicating with uh, CNN, for instance. <laughs> they would know uh, our communication systems. And they all of a sudden, we'd be getting messages on the internet uh, from them. Yeah. They'd be plugged into to Twitter or X or whatever. <laughs> or like the old Ray Bradbury story, one day you black out and when you wake up, you're under a microscope being dissected. <laughs> yes, yes. Kind of shades of Kafka. <laughs> yeah, Ray might have ripped that one off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a good story, huh? So I didn't think that was a deep topic or anything, but it just it's coming to my thoughts yeah. a couple of times lately. What if there was anyway? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I I think there are even more interesting questions. What if uh, put it in the context of something like the, the Matrix? What if we're just uh, a computer simulation that some teenage kid and often another realm? This is, this is his high school project. It's, it's me and my experience. That could be. What if that was true? And that's one of the great charms about Buddhism is it's, this is still the path I should be following. Whereas if I'm uh, a, a Christian who believes that the whole point of this is that there was this figure of Jesus Christ who who died for my sins, obviously that that scenario kind of blows that one out of the water. But it doesn't blow this practice out of the water, and that that for me is deeply meaningful. It's it's kind of pointing to the fact that all these metaphysical issues, 
And Shakyamuni Buddha approached it that way. When, when, uh, because we naturally want to go there and argue over those points you know, about immortality, the beginning of the world. And that's all metaphysical stuff. The Buddha kept it very real. And by doing that, what, what the metaphysical reality is, it truly isn't, as, as Shakyamuni would respond. That's not an issue here. It doesn't matter. It could be fun to speculate about, but just understand what's really the root issue. And that's your life and your experience, your dukkha and your liberation. And even if I am, this program being run by this uh, uh, pimply-faced high school kid. Hope he gets an A. Yeah. Depends what he's simulating. If it's Nirvana, he's failing. <laughs> So along those lines, um, huh? in Buddhist cosmology, um, where you have the different realms, right? Um, are those temporary states of thought, or are they really different realms, uh, different dimensions? No, and then that comes back to what I was just saying about the Buddhist teaching. Those realms are all within us, here and now. They're not separate from us. Anything, anytime we perceive something as being separate, that's missing it. What makes it real is, is our experience. So the hell realm is real. And I, I, I know it exists because I, I have a lot of experience in it. <laughs> Otherwise, it would just be an idea in my head. Right? And same with all the other realms, hungry ghosts. I know that one. So a person, let's say, who's in, in addiction, their existence is in the realm of the hungry ghosts. Precisely. Precisely. But that can always, it's fluid, it can, change, it can always change. Yes. Yes. As opposed to the conventional view as well, they are going to go, of course, we simplify it. There are two realms. Well, three. There's, I guess, the earthly realm, our life. And then there's the hell realm and the heavenly realm and the afterlife. Mm. So if we boil it here and we know where we're going, but it's separate from us right now. And in Buddhism, uh, at least in, in the Zen variety of it, it's, it's right here and now. So more states of thought than completely different realms of existence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are no different separate realms of existence. Well, I'm just thinking of like quantum physics where we look at different dimensions. Yeah, I, I guess to put it in terms of, uh, you know, if we want to bring physics into it, uh, the uh, many worlds, multiverse mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. But again, those are just thoughts then. But uh, mm -hmm. for us, 
We can theorize about those, but what's real by our definition of reality is, is what's in this, my realm and my experience. So how do I experience it? So it's all mine. Precisely. So, I mean, that's, and that's the teaching of Yogacara, which is often referred to as mind only. So that's where they're coming from. It's in 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 what the Western world, you know, mind only. We go, oh, that's idealism, and that now we're plugged right into metaphysics now. That that it's the mental, the the ideal world that that's real, and this has nothing to do with those kinds of. Uh, ultimate realities, these metaphysical entities. No, it's just looking at our experience. And that kind of connects to quantum mechanics in terms of how our experience does impact reality. As soon as you measure something, all of a sudden you have electrons and photons. You have, you have materials, things, things we call things. But before that, there's just the wave, which is that universal quality. And then all we can do is uh, have probabilities as to what, what's, what's in that wave. <clears throat> and if we do measure it, how likely is it it will be here or there or there? But the reality is, so I mean, the Buddhist quantum cosmologist kind of connects right in there, and the universe, the whole universe, is a wave, and it's our objectification, our measurement of things, which is our dis distinguishing things. That's what creates the things. So the parallels get pretty interesting, actually. <laughs> Fascinating, as what we say. Yeah. 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 I, uh, a book I'd mentioned uh, a while back, um, I, I've resumed. I kind of hit the pause button about two thirds of the way through because of some other reading that took precedence, including a library book that the library was pretty insistent I returned. <laughs> <laughs> But but the book I return to is uh, uh, for those interested in physics and its relationship to Eastern uh, thought. Uh, it's Heinrich Pass's The One, and Heinrich Pass is uh, I think he's German, but he's a physicist, a quantum physicist, and he traces the uh, uh, and it's mostly from a Western perspective uh, the history of of monism, of all is one. Uh, but he also you know, certainly uh, gives, gives a nod to Eastern thought as having been rooted in that. Uh, but he, he relates that to, to quantum too. And sees that as kind of being the way forward 
or for physics, for physics is this notion of the one. So to take that a little bit further, then when meditating uh, in forgetting the self, mm-hmm. in in truly forgetting the self, um, what's left? What what is then? Yeah, everything. In, 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 in reference <laughs> to the way that is the universe. Yeah. In forgetting the self. Right. Kind of like be, becoming the wave and seeing ourselves within the wave. So that's the realization of all things. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh used this imagery, but it didn't originate with him. That's got a long history within Buddhism about the water and the waves. Only they kind of reverse it, where the wave is the particularity and the water is the universal. Yeah. But but then when this metaphor was originated, people had no concept of, of waves in in in, the, in physical reality, so they couldn't they couldn't get it quite right. What was his metaphor? Well, the the difference between the wave, which is the stuff going on on the surface, kind of like our sense of self, and and other waves we can differentiate. Versus just the body of water, which is undifferentiated. Kind of like Dogen and from Genjo Koan being out in the middle of the ocean. And you look in all the directions and everything looks the same. Right? Water, water everywhere. There's no land. So all you see is this water. That's a nice image for, for this no self, emptiness. And of course, without having some particularity, even if it's not land, the stars or your instruments, you need something to, to reorient you so you know where you are and how you can uh, get to wherever it is you're trying to get to. Uh, so if we're just in emptiness, and this kind of circles back to to uh, the teaching that we're always coming back to, Sandoka, the merging of difference and unity. If we're just in unity, then, you know, we're out in the middle of the ocean and we'll never have our bearings or be able to get anywhere to do anything. So that's not a terribly helpful way to be either. But that is nonetheless, the, the, the metaphor is a good one. That is consistent with reality. And we need to be aware of that. That's part of awakening, to be enlightened. But there's a reason why we're deluded. <clears throat> so we see things from a certain point of view. And this is also you find in Dogen's Genjo Kwan, because he talks about how the water appears to a fish, to a dragon, or, you know, that we can, and we, we can't know, but we can kind of intuitively get the sense that, well, actually, my view is limited, not only because all my fellow humans might have, and likely do have, a, a somewhat different view, but what about other life forms? They probably have a slightly more radically different 
view than I do. And what then gives priority to one versus the other? And we want to, our immediate response to that is, well, mine. Or at least the human view. <laughs> I might be willing to concede to, uh, if I'm, if I, if somebody argues successfully for a different view, I might be willing to concede, but, uh, yeah, environmentally speaking, and how do we treat other species? Uh, this implies, you know, this kind of, Metasuna, that as it's phrased, can, can kind of lead one to think, well, this is about the human realm, but you can just as easily chant that and see it as being about all things. And I think that's the way most Buddhist practitioners receive that. And part of that reception, part of that understanding, is that you know, my view of things, the human view of things, is is relative. That's why we call one of the terms we use to describe it is relative. And other beings have their view. And our philosophy of pragmatism, well, if it works, it's it's that's a sign it's true. Well, there are species that have been around for many millions of years longer than we have. So I'd say it clearly works for them. I'm not so sure about our, <laughs> our practices. Maybe the, te the test of pragmatism uh, would indicate that we should be paying more attention to them. Pragmatically speaking, they, had, they actually have more authority than that, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking again. Now we're back to the insect world. <laughs> what was it? They are the rulers. It was the one by Heinrich Boss? Boss, P A S. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good book. I, I had that, I listened to a book on tape on the way here, and I had that thought about the fish. You know, the fish swims all day in its world or whatever, and the bird's not conscious of the air, and the fish isn't conscious of the water. Right. And I was thinking about, you know, that's how we just need it. I think it's almost hurts us more than I had an exact on the way here today. So the same, about the same thing about how our, how they say what makes us human is our ability to have consciousness about ourselves and our environment and our right. meaning. Uh, but it could be more of a hindrance. That it's like that's what we're trying to let go of is that all our own conceptual ideas yeah. of what those things are and just be one and present with the way things are without thinking about it. Yeah. Like a fish does. Like, yeah. Like a bird. Yeah. You're not burdened by that human aspect of reflection or self introspection. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but it's not that, that being, uh, having human consciousness is is good or bad it's like everything it's else a, it's a mixed bag yeah, yeah. we we want to look at it yeah we want to look at it as is uh, what elevates us to the highest level and uh you know it can be a beautiful thing but it can also 
lead to, uh, I won't name names, but it can lead to some pretty ugly places. <laughs> so I also just had a conversation with a neurologist at the hospital a couple weeks ago. He was talking about brain death and being brain dead. Yeah. And he made the comment that, oh, when a baby's born, it's not human. It doesn't happen. Right. He's like, there's a certain part of the brain that just takes a long time to develop. And they're, they're really just kind of almost an animal form until that part of the brain develops. And that, that was from a neurologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I never even thought about that on that level. Well, even humans are human. I mean, I guess it's a human baby, but it doesn't have that human. Because of its potentiality. Right, right, right. To use a good monster. Greek term <laughs> <laughs> from the early days of Western thought. Yeah, it has that potentiality, but of course it's, it's not human. Because if you abandon it, it would die. So it's not yet being human. <laughs> yeah. Or a human being. <laughs> it's a human being, but it's not yet being. Human. <laughs> there you go. I like that. Does a baby have good nature? <laughs> of course. But so does the poor cockroach. Yeah. <laughs> a much maligned cockroach. Yeah. Anything else? John. Um, I guess the question beyond us, and I need to say a few things on this, how does change happen? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I realized as a psychiatrist was that all of us in the moment do whatever we think is that yeah. in that moment. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so if I go backwards from there a bit, that's a result of the causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of those causes and conditions has to be changed. I would put it a little, I would reverse that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think the, the change is the result of what? Of the causes and conditions, which is the result of, in order to have causes and conditions, there's separation. So we're in the realm of the relative. So that's why, from the standpoint of, of unity, of the absolute, you have God beyond karma, beyond causes and conditions. That everything throughout space and time is present right now. So the causes and conditions only enter in when we Divide things up, past, present, future, critical to causes and conditions. And, you know, and again, this connects to con contemporary thought in the realm of physics about the birth of, of time. 
And now they're seeing that as also the birth of space too. So how do you get out of uniqueness? Oh, well, in, in terms of, yeah. I, we're back to my basic question though, that we talked about. I know it's mm -hmm. but it's, it's about, you know, we're, we're talking about when we talk about whether it's the parameters or the precepts or whatever, we're talking about bringing about change in our life. Because of where our life is currently, which is rooted in, so, in attachments and right. so on and so forth. Yeah, that's true. So how does the change come about? Well, from from a Buddhist standpoint, it comes about from awakening to the true nature of things. So and and through that awakening, becoming less likely to become attached to particular to these things that we separate out from from their unity and we attach to some things we reject other things and that's you know kind of plots our course through our life but if we can always be awake to the fact that actually it is ultimately just the one as Heinrich Paz would put it uh, this the true nature of things is is that but yet we see things from from our limited view we can't take in the entirety so we can't see it chances are the most super computers we can design probably won't be able to see that either as i was saying i think thursday that's where our intuitive ability can connect to that but that's the best we can do is we can have an intuition of it. And it can strike, it strikes our whole body mind. It's not just conceptualized, it's not just our rational mind, but it kind of goes much deeper. It has to, because we can't compartmentalize it. We kind of, it's literally kind of being swallowed up in the wave, in the ocean, and losing that sense of self. So those are the, the grand awakening moments. But then we, we always come back to the surface. <laughs> As a diver, you can relate to that. We, we come back up. You have to. Yeah, exactly. That's recommended. <laughs> uh, I do not recommend permanent submersion. <laughs> but I do recommend uh, uh, being pretty familiar with that turf too. So are you saying that all change comes about with realization? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the change, no change, uh, dialectic, you might say. I mean, on the surface, there's change yeah. ongoing, obviously. That's the nature of that beast, is change. 
Isn't that a result of an impermanence? Right. So impermanence is uh, is a result of our being limited beings. That's what makes it a basic truth of reality. We are limited beings. So we have to experience things that way. Things are impermanent. That's our reality. Now, and to the degree we can awaken to the true nature of reality, <clears throat> impermanence is still present, but we we see more deeply into it. And the impermanence on the surface loses some of its sting to us because we we can see it more deeply too and recognize that you know at a certain level there there isn't any and there's no separation because remember no separation implies uh impermanence is the kind of the end of, of impermanence if there's no separation because Without separation, there is no change. You, you are the boundless realm, the changeless realm. <clears throat> so that's, that's where this Dharma teaching, you know, 2,500 years later, is still just as a book. You know, the things, some of the surface teachings, like we'd experience with the Lotus Sutra, they're not quite as effective as they were back then. Because those scenarios change over time. So the teachings need to change. But uh, the deep core Dharma teaching doesn't change. So that's why Dogen can speak about this single transmission across the all the Buddhas and ancestors. One transmission. <laughs> That's it. And it's it's good regardless of what the surface conditions are. In 21st century America or 13th century Japan or 6th century BCE uh, India. It's, it's, it's constant threat. Now you got me thinking about Uji and time being nonlinear. It's a whole other basket of worms. Yeah, well, and <laughs> the fact that, yeah, that time seen in its separateness is an illusion. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's a human construct. Right, exactly. And it's a construct based on the, our limited view of things. Mm -hmm. Where we see the change, we measure the change. Well, I understand the concept, but I cannot get my head around nonlinear time. You know what I mean? It's because of my existence, it's, I'll always be yeah. here. And you will. Yeah, that's true. So it's hard to just understand that all thing, every, you know, each moment is the universe. Right. Just how to get your head around it. But in reality, but not for my existence. <laughs> <laughs> Your your existence is within that realm. Yeah. Yeah. 
but you're always going to revert back to seeing it this time. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing, otherwise we couldn't yeah. get together like this. <laughs> the notion of 9.30 on Saturday morning would be meaningless. <laughs> Within the context of what you were saying, uh, are you saying there can be no willful change? Well, see, this is where the will is tied in to, to the world of, of change. And so the will, and you know, I, I'll insert here my, my way of, of accounting for that, uh, is that the will doesn't exist metaphysically. So what plays a key role for us isn't having a free will. It's acting as if we do have a free will. How it impacts our activity, that makes a difference. You know, somebody that doesn't think they have free will and that they're really convinced of that, their behavior is going to be different. You know, they've done experiments to, to kind of bear that out. So it, it matters if we believe we do. In fact, what's the difference? We can then kind of reflect on, well, what's the difference? Why do I have to have some metaphysical, uh, the decider within us, the, the master controller <clears throat> somewhere in my brain that's pushing all the buttons, controlling things. Well, it's, it's why I certainly didn't use free will. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that doesn't yeah. exist. Does yeah. It? Will is just agency, our yeah. ability oh, yeah. to, agency. Yeah. to uh, act. And that's part of our nature. And it's not any one actor. It's all these causes and conditions coming together that allow me to act in certain ways. So that's and, will, and you, willfulness, agency. And you make choices about which of those ways. Yeah, I, at least I believe I do. And the belief is, is enough. Belief is a powerful thing. It has a role to play in Zen. We follow the the, uh, the Eightfold Path or practice the Paramitas, and there's faith involved. And we continue to to follow that path because, again, back to this pragmatic sense, you know, we're we're seeing some some uh, evidence of it. So. And I've said this before, but I, I, I love that Einstein said it's all determined the beginning as well as the end by forces over which we have no control. But he wasn't just talking about the physical universe, like ping pong balls bouncing around. He was talking about us also. Yeah. He said it is all determined. And the forces over which we have no control are the antecedent causes and conditions leading up to those the decision that I make with my free will exactly. to do something. Right, right. And it also leads to my impression that I do have right. free will. Yeah. It's, it's part of that. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> Good. More than two. I always look forward to it. Yeah, the problem is when when we pull it out and we want to make something of it. Create something. Ossify it. Reify it. So the Eightfold Path is, is a very helpful thing. I'm a big believer in, in uh, teaching people about it, but it's not in the sense of like the Ten Commandments being handed down by a deity figure that this is it. You and many, many others. <laughs> <laughs> from, from a, a psychological point of view, that, that has to be interesting, more interesting to people that, like yourself, uh, that deal in those aspects, knowing that it's so difficult for people to let go of something. They think it's in their control. It's their will. It's yeah. their, they have the, quote, God-given power. I mean, I have a whole family like that. And don't talk, don't even get that conversation going because there's maybe glitz around. <laughs> it, it's like, don't tell me I don't have free will. God gave me that. Yeah. And, um, it, and it just ends right there. There's no deeper thinking yeah. beyond that. Oh, you should just say, but there is no God. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the brick store. That's where I have to go. That's the first part. <laughs> You know, the whole family at risk. If it's well thrown, it would be the last word. It's just necessary. So believing in, in, in this will, I think, just helps to lead to becoming willful. And, and think about that where somebody is just a willful person, it's kind of their way or the highway. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what being willful is. As opposed to, we talk about letting go and opening ourselves up. How does that relate then to this willfulness? It's much more open to this core understanding about limited view and uh, the fact that the reality is boundless. So we're, we're trying to plot a course here in our limited realm as, as finite beings uh, in a boundless world. And so be, be gentle, <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't be willful. <laughs> It's okay to have this sense of will and agency, but hold it lightly. I can't help but wonder if just the no self can still have agency to act. You know, that's that's a really good question. As as no self, when we're when we're kind of in one of our enlightened modes, I guess that's one of the reasons why Zazen maybe is this, uh, this being in perfect stillness. Mm 
which means not after. But we can, uh, it's kind of a gateway to no self, but uh, that we can't just remain there. So it's just kind of a gateway to see more deeply into our true nature. But then we're always constantly pulled back up into the world where there is this self. And we, we track it. We know our social security number and how much I'm supposed to have deposited in my checking account every month because of my social security number. <laughs> Yeah, I've got all this. Yeah. <clears throat> so don't try to pull one over on me because of no self. <laughs> to be a fully functional no self realizer it means we have to be in in both of those realms. So I think it was Kadagiri who had that uh, rich imagery of kind of being in the ocean with with one foot foot. You know, on the floor of the ocean in that realm of, of oneness, of no self, but yet also able to traverse the surface as well. That you can do both. That's the merging, that's Sandoka. And if we're just doing one or the other, <coughs> but not merging, either one not, in or not of itself is, is a problem. <laughs> so I always found that up, uh, and I think maybe that metaphor comes from uh, uh, the universe in a single moment. It's sort of like the uh, description of the box, the description of the box universe. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right. I think if I uh, stop drinking coffee in the morning, I I feel closer to no self when I'm before I drink coffee. Yeah, <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> Actually, that's why in retirement I uh, I adjusted my uh, morning drink, which was always just coffee, 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 and then I decided. Uh, I, I would try uh, taking four days a week and doing tea in the morning, no coffee. And then I even further subdivide that between green tea on Tuesday and Thursday, black tea Monday and Wednesday, and then Friday through Sunday is coffee. And it's been a wonderful routine. I <laughs> fell right into it and I said, boy, I think I found Sando here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it being Saturday, obviously I've got the coffee. <laughs> okay. 
So maybe that's it. That pretty much took us to 12. So let's go ahead and chant out. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Another, uh, before you log off. Don't go anywhere. <laughs>